So, John, we're going to chat with Matt Levitin, CEO of Harley-Davidson Motor Company. Uh, can you take it easy on him here and try to behave a little bit? Well, he, he has folks that are helping him with this stuff, so it's not like he really needs us to go easy on him. I mean, yeah. let's talk about the the overseas plant. Let's talk about that stuff. Well, that's the thing. I mean, come on, are you going to hammer him about that? If we have to, here we go. Welcome to the Behind the Bars podcast, where we discuss all things motorcycles, memories, and mayhem. Oh, this is awesome. Sponsored by Wilkins Harley-Davidson. Let's get this thing started. Here's John and Mark. Okay, on the line with us is Matt Levitich, CEO of Harley-Davidson Motor Company. Afternoon, Matt. How are you? Great, John. How are you? Great to great to talk to you today. We are super excited to have you behind the bars podcast here. Uh, we know your time is really valuable. We don't want to waste any time. We want to get on some topics. Uh, we also um, told you it was going to be an easy podcast, but our intent is right. You know, hit it really hard right off the line here. We know you're prepared for that, but uh, you know, talking about this ten year strategy, we're reading about, we're hearing a lot about. Uh, in, in, in more controversial is the uh, you know building a plant overseas. Talk about that, Matt. Tell us, why are we, why are we building plants overseas? Well, let, let me back up to the first part of the question, John, if you don't mind. I think the 10-year the objectives that we, that we put forward about a year ago uh, take us out to 2027, and we're calling it the next chapter in our long history. As you know, we're celebrating 115 years of business a business started uh, here in Milwaukee in 1903, right actually pretty much beneath my feet as I talk to you here today, uh, where the shed was built and the three Davidsons and Bill Harley got together with a dream of uh, motorizing uh, bicycles, and they took it to the place that um, the strength that the company enjoys today. They didn't do it like everybody else was trying to do it. They engineered an all-new frame. Uh, they made it go, they made it go fast, they made it last. And that's the heart and soul of Harley-Davidson, I think, from the very beginning, is great product. So putting that strategy together, uh, we were looking at, in particular, the opportunities that the company has internationally and also the different challenges that are facing not just Harley but the motorcycle industry here in the United States, recognizing that for us to continue to have the vital motorcycle business that we enjoy here in the U.S., we need to actually shift our attention from not just we build great motorcycles, but we build great riders. And that is really the headline goal of our 10-year objectives. Uh, it plays out in the U.S. as to creating 2 million new Harley-Davidson riders. And this is important because I think for most of our 115-year history, we have focused on the machines. We at the company, I'm designing and manufacturing great motorcycles, you and the dealer network and selling and servicing uh, great motorcycles, it was assumed more or less that there would be people to ride them. And as we look at changing trends and tendencies among new generations of people and lots more competition for people's time and their money, uh, you know, just think of smartphones that we didn't have when we were kids that are, you know, several hundred in some cases $1,000 with monthly data plans and so forth. There's a lot of competition for people's time and money, and we need to raise motorcycling up as a choice uh, that we want people to make and we want people to take. Uh, and that's really about how we inspire.
inspire the next generation of riders to keep this sport strong in the United States. And I like to think that um, when we wake up in the morning, maybe historically, we woke up in the morning and we said, we build great motorcycles here at the company, and we do. In the future, we need to wake up in the morning, and our first thought needs to be, we make motorcycle riders. And you have different ideas when your first thought is, we build riders. Um, and, and how we think about how we create riders, how we inspire riders, how we mentor and support new people that are joining the sport. So at the core of that 10-year set of objectives is building the next generation of Harley-Davidson riders globally. It's a big deal here in the United States. We're excited about it. We're one year into that 10-year journey. And, of course, product plays a very important role in doing that. The dealer network plays a very important role. Programs like Riding Academy and other rider training programs play an important role. Our active existing riders play a very important role in being out on their motorcycles, inspiring people to think about, hey, that looks like fun. I think I'd like to give that a try. So I think when we all get together as we are focused on this singular objective of building riders, we're going to be just fine here in the United States and, in fact, around the world. So shifting gears to your other question about um, our investment in uh, assembly capacity in Thailand. As we look at the business in total, um, the, the probably the biggest opportunities for the company, just as you look at the numbers and how many people ride small motorcycles and so forth, is in Southeast Asia. And um, practically, if you've been to India or uh, Indonesia, countries like Vietnam, China, etc. Uh, almost everybody starts their life on some sort of powered two-wheel vehicle. So creating riders isn't at all an issue, but as these economies develop and as people have more leisure time and more disposable income, they are migrating toward uh, bigger motorcycles. They're migrating toward motorcycles that are used for leisure and enjoyment, not just utility transportation. And Harley-Davidson needs to be there and wants to be there to capture uh, some of that migration. The existing tariffs and duties and luxury taxes and so forth in many of those markets mean our motorcycles are, in essence, twice the cost of what they are here in the United States. And for, in a lot of cases, the disposable income in many of those markets is far less than what we have in the United States. So we're selling motorcycles today. They're extremely expensive, and we're not selling very many. We can get around those duties and tariffs and luxury taxes by investing uh, to produce within the region, which is what we're doing. We're doing that to gain access to those growing markets so that we can sell more motorcycles, inspire more people about the Harley-Davidson brand, and that will help Harley-Davidson be a stronger company. So a lot of people like to say that but we're exporting jobs. We're not. This is not about capacity. This is about market access. Without that plant in that region, we wouldn't build those bikes because we wouldn't sell those bikes. Um, and so that's the nature of that investment. I understand why it's controversial, but I think that the whole story hasn't really been uh, explained um, fully. Yeah, and I, I think it's controversial because, you know, we this is new. We, we weren't not all aware of what this investment entailed and and what that was all about so it sounds to me like um you know history is going to show you as as someone that's 
um, you know, ahead of the game on this? Are other manufacturers already doing this, or is Harley ahead of it? Or where where are we at with that, Matt? I well, just within the motorcycle industry, John, I think that actually this is one of the issues. Um, and, and if you could put yourself in the shoes of a, a motorcycle dealer in Southeast Asia, already much of our competition in the premium segment, a lot of the European brands, they already have and have had in some cases for a decade or more. Wow. In the region. And because of that, their products are more affordable. They have a better chance or a better advantage on gaining market share. Their dealers can be more profitable because of higher volumes and so forth. So this is very important for us competitively, too, not to let that market get captured uh, by the competition before we get our foothold in there and get it in there. So we have plenty of dealers in the region. that The volumes are quite low, uh, and obviously you as a dealer know that volume is part of your profitability as well. Uh, so ultimately it's about having a strong dealer network in the region as well. Matt, I have a question for you. This is Mark here um, about the factors that have been perhaps limiting the amount of new riders that are coming into the sport domestically. And as the motor company shifts its focus towards building riders and away from the machines themselves, what, what, are, what are the factors that have been reducing the amount of riders in the domestic marketplace, do you think? So I want, that's a great question, Mark, and I want to be clear. We are not shifting our emphasis away from making great motorcycles. In fact, the motorcycles will play a very important role in inspiring ridership. And part of one of our five objectives is to build 2 million new riders in, in the United States. Another key one is to launch 100 new high-impact motorcycles by 2027. And, what, and, and I'd like to make the point, you know, lots of people focus on the number 100. What I focus on is high impact. High impact means that the products we're going to launch are going to make a difference to people. They're going to get people to sit up and take notice. They're going to get people to get off the couch. They're going to get people to think about, hey, I want to learn how to ride motorcycles, or hey, I want to um, add a, an additional one to my fleet, or trade in and get a new one. Um, it's got to it's got to motivate someone to think about Harley Davidson differently, um, and and so the motorcycles themselves will play a role in uh, creating an environment where more people are interested and able to ride. So, say for example, the um, the electric motorcycle that we announced that will be in market within 18 months. That's based on the live wire um, demonstrators that we announced uh, that we. Uh, previewed out in the marketplace in 2014, uh, we had tremendous response. Uh, we did about 12,000 demo rides on a fleet of about 30 live wire hand-built, you know, prototypes, if you will. We did wow. them around the world. We got feet. We got all kinds of real riders from, you know, traditional maybe core customers to young adults, women all over the world, and to a person, the feedback on that product was exceptional. They, they said, you don't need to do anything more. It's an outstanding motorcycle. I want it now. Um, so we, we have surveys for everybody. And we also got feedback. We asked questions, you know, what range expectations do you have? What about the pricing that you, you uh, would expect for a product like this? And we 
knew that we had to have benefit from maturing technology in battery energy density and motor controllers and so forth in order to get those range targets and those price targets met. But we knew we had a winning product. The product itself inspired people about what's possible in an electric Harley-Davidson motorcycle because we set out to demonstrate what a no-excuses electric Harley-Davidson could be. And people responded to a person, I want one, I want it now. So we felt really good about that. And one of the things that I love, for example, about uh, Livewire, I, I, I ride all kinds of motorcycles, and, and I love to ride. And I also love all kinds of, you know, technologies and things and cars and so forth. I had a different feeling riding that motorcycle than I have on traditional motorcycles. Not better, but just different. I felt like I was flying. You know, I felt like I um, I could hear things that I couldn't hear on a traditional bike. I could talk to the person that was riding next to me in a normal voice at 70 miles an hour. Things that were harder to do on a normal motorcycle, and it just had a different feeling. And, and in addition, it, there was no no gears to shift, no clutch, beautiful throttle response. You twist and go. You twist to slow down. If you needed to brake, you brake. So the ease of riding, I, I almost think it's easier to ride than a bicycle. Uh, and, and think about how that opens up markets for us from the standpoint of ease of use and access for people that might be a little bit intimidated about gears and a clutch. So the, the whole EV space is quite exciting as a element of our product portfolio. It's not going to replace what we do today. It's going to add to what we do today. And by adding to it, we will also inspire and expose motorcycling to new people and help them join the sport uh, on a different path. So, Matt, you have a mechanical engineering background. Does that influence you in your decision-making? And, and also, could you speak about Alta Motors? Does, did that impact your your decision into investing or be involved with them? Well, you know, I try... <laughs> a good question. I try to have my mechanical engineering degree not influence, if you will, my decisions. I think it helps um, to have that technical foundation because this is a technical business. You know, m most of the money that we invest and the time we invest in a company is in product development and engineering and manufacturing and testing. And so I think from the standpoint of having that basis of knowledge, it, it helps you know, me do uh, certainly a big portion of my job. Um, it helps me think about, for example, not, you know, so whether the Alta investment is a good investment, yes, but why, okay? And what is it about their technology that makes this a smarter investment than, than say, some alternative we might have? Um, so I think it, it does help um, in some of the decision-making, but obviously not, not all of the decision-making. We think that, that Alta offers uh, Harley-Davidson some real advantages in energy density of batteries, which are in, in particular important for motorcycles. We don't have as much space. Even, even cars struggle with energy density, but they have more space to package batteries and achieve range. Motorcycles have to be extremely well-balanced, Weight is always important and um, something that's narrow and nimble and so forth. So uh, Alta has 
some great technology in that space and then motor controls as well and we think it will help us um, enhance uh, a, a portfolio of electric motorcycles not just the initial live wire based um, offering we'll have. Matt I'm really curious about the, um, the live wire and electric motorcycles in general as many of our listeners are and I think one of the big questions that always comes up is what do these things sound like? I mean, sound is a big part of the Harley-Davidson culture and uh, really a signature to the motorcycles. What does an electric live wire sound like, and, and what has the response been to the sound that it makes by the test riders? Well, I think I'll just begin with, I, and I think your listeners will appreciate that as we think about new product, we, we recognize that what we really, where we really excel it's creating an emotional connection between the rider and their bike. And we, we see that through three primary avenues, look, sound, and feel. So whenever styling and engineering are getting together and they're thinking about um, things we can do to new product, we, we work really hard on all three, delivering all three of those things for the rider because when we do, that strong emotional bond is connected and there's this real passion and deep feeling about riding that maybe otherwise wouldn't be there. So if you if you take that to the to the next extension, in about I think 2011, you know I I challenged the product development community. It was a small you know four or five people with some seed money. What would an electric Harley Davidson look like, sound like, and feel like? And the most obvious question mark in everybody's mind was sound. Of course, we can make it look great, we can make it feel great, but what will it sound like? And through a lot of great engineering and design choices, uh, Livewire has a, a longitudinal motor and a, and a bevel gear set that transfers that power to the rear wheel to, you know, 90 degree uh, power shift. And that gear set makes this fantastic kind of jet engine sort of turbine sound. Uh, it's not loud, it's not harsh, but it's very, um, very much a part of the riding experience. And you feel like you're whizzing around on on, on some sort of jet bike. Um, and and you know, it, it's just part of the delivery of look, sound, and feel. And they did an awesome job of that complete kind of emotional package and as I said earlier it's a different feeling you know it's not better it's just different you know I, I most of the people that rode the bike maybe it would be their only motorcycle or their first motorcycle but for many people it would be another motorcycle that they'd also like to have because of that difference now talking about that Matt do you see uh, you know if you were to just look into the future some these types of bikes, electric bikes, were to come out, would they um, would they replace the Harley-Davidson Riding Academy, which is a training program for new riders? Would this be a, uh, an easier way to train new riders? You know, John, I don't, I don't know, actually. There's not really a, a firm view on that. I have my own um, feelings that I, I think if you learned on an electric bike with no clutch and no gear shifting, um, it'd be hard to just say that you're qualified to ride any motorcycle. I think we'd have to really 
the industry would have to really weigh in, including with the government, about what actually, what training is required. And we have, in the United States, pretty much a, a one-size-fits-all approach to motorcycle training. In many markets around the world, you you have a tiered licensing structure, and I'm not advocating this, so don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, just highlighting that different governments do it differently, but there's a tiered structure where you're, in order to ride a bike over 500 cc's, you have to actually take a second test and demonstrate that you're capable of riding a more powerful motorcycle, even though the lower-powered bike also has a clutch and gears. So it's just emphasizing the point that in the new world, one size may not fit all, and that, that actually may open up opportunities because, as I mentioned earlier, I think the electric bike is easier to ride than a bicycle. So why should rider training, if you will, or licensing requirements be as strict as they are for a traditional motorcycle when you're speaking about electric? You're, we're, not, we're not required to get licenses to ride bicycles. If this is easier to ride than a bicycle, what, what should the licensing requirement be? Interesting. For the process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think this is part of what will unfold for us here in the United States as electric uh, vehicles uh, become a, uh, an increasing part of our world. But I'm not forecasting a wholesale shift. Well, Matt, I think that the EV product will add to our portfolio. It'll be a really exciting part of it. It will create pathways for people to join the sport more, more easily and it will sit alongside our great traditional Harley-Davidson motorcycles, which we're continuing to invest in. Well, it's fascinating to, to imagine what this motorcycle is going to be like, but shifting away, Matt, a little bit from the electric technology, uh, one of the things that we are noticing more and more in, at the dealership here at Wilkins is the amount of women who are entering the dealership uh, for the first time uh, interested in learning how to ride a motorcycle and acquiring a motorcycle. And this this uh, newfound uh, popularity amongst women is fascinating to me. I'm wondering if you can comment about it, and do you feel there's any correlation between that and what's going on in, in the women's movement across the country or there are other issues? It's, um, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting fact to me that we're seeing that happen at the same time. Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's interesting, but more importantly, it's exciting. There's no reason that women shouldn't be out riding motorcycles and maybe for whatever reason they they weren't in the past and we for sure see the same trends nationally more and more are and I just think it's awesome right there's no there's no other word for it and and the more the, the better well we definitely feel the same way about that for sure it, the other thing that we're noticing a lot of um, are, are riders who are are coming in to the dealership um, and they are quite interested in the Harley-Davidson culture and lifestyle and I get the feeling from time to time that uh, that we're selling something more than machines here and uh, when I see people respond to uh, the brand I'm seeing them respond to aspects of the brand that have nothing to do with the machine and uh, I was wondering if you could comment on that that culture that is Harley Davidson and why it has such broad appeal over such broad demographics these days. Uh, people just want to be a part of this. Well, it, it is something that's actually quite hard to put your finger on. Um, by the way, I just 
started reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and it's a, it's a, I'm sure you guys have read it. Yeah. Haven't read it? You need to read it. But why I waited so long to read it, I don't know. But the opening uh, paragraph, or sorry, chapter, is is just just so filled with things that I absolutely identify with riding. Uh, yeah, um, and one of the things that is already touched on in that opening chapter, which is, I think, such a huge part of the brand package, is the community, the bond, the brotherhood or sisterhood that you have with your fellow riders. Um, and another thing that they touched on that I've always felt really strongly or just always stuck out for me is it's as much about riding as it is about stopping in the sense that riding is this very solitary and immersive experience. One that for me, I do my best thinking while I'm riding, which is interesting because it's also very demanding. So there's some part of my brain that is very active in the, the mechanics and in the paying attention and everything else that liberates some other part of my brain to do its best thinking. And, and in that, the stopping becomes important because if you're with your buddies and you talk about what you were thinking about or what you saw and you sort of compare notes at the gas station and then boom, you're back under your helmet, on your bike, in the elements, in that kind of solitary experience. So there, that, that author is doing such a nice job of creating so much of the feelings and, and meaning that Certainly I derive, and I think a lot of our riders derive from motorcycling. And then there are, there are things that go along with that that are the visible aspects of the culture. But I think what people see is they see a community of individuals that are together and aligned and, you know, happy and engaged and doing something that clearly they're passionate about. And if you're on the outside of that looking in, you kind of wonder, hmm, I wonder what that's all about, and maybe I want to give that a try because that looks like fun. So, Matt, we're already at 26 minutes here. I know your time is really valuable. Uh, we don't want to take up any more uh, more of it. Um, is there anything, any parting thoughts on your end uh, you want to leave us with? Well, you know, it's March. It's the end of March, and it's actually, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think for you guys in Vermont, not quite yet riding season, but... Uh, it's right around the corner, and that's what's on my mind right now is uh, the opportunity to get out and put some more miles on as the nice weather comes. And so I just want to thank you guys for being, number one, great dealers, great representatives of the Harley-Davidson brand by taking care of your riders and encouraging people to get out there and ride uh, your existing owners. If, if, if I'm in my pickup truck and not on my motorcycle, I'm quite sure people that pass me on the road aren't thinking, hey, I want to learn how to ride. But if I'm on my bike and they see me on my bike, somebody's thinking, that looks like fun. I need to get out there and try that. So for all the, the what you guys do every day in encouraging your riders to ride and supporting them in the way that you do, I want to thank you, and I want to thank your customers and your riders uh, for being out on the open road and for doing it on a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. We're working hard here every day to earn your to continue to earn your loyalty and your and your trust and your respect and so just thanks on behalf of the company for 
for everything you do. We appreciate everything that you do as well, Matt. This is Matt Levitich, CEO of Harley-Davidson Motor Company, and uh, we'll be signing off. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Bars podcast, sponsored by Wilkins Harley-Davidson. Stay tuned for our next exciting podcast. Check out additional information on WilkinsHarley.com.